Good morning. We're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 in the NIV. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. As you can see, the focus is on rebuilding. And that's because we're starting a series on the book of Nehemiah that'll take us throughout the summer. And as we think about the book of Nehemiah, it strikes me that it may be very timely. Because all of us have experienced two and a half years of trouble in one way or the other. We're all coming out of a pandemic. We're all trying to find out what the new normal is. And apart from just the pandemic itself, which contributed to all of this, more than any other time, people are fragmented. Community seems to have been ruptured, even destroyed. Families are at odds with one another over things they never expected to be. Difficulties in the community of faith, difficulties in the community at large, difficulties within families. So let's focus on rebuilding primarily community as the church of Jesus Christ. We're going to do that by thinking about Nehemiah and the way in which Nehemiah perhaps has some lessons for us in the rebuild. First of all, who is Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah is neither a prophet or a priest or a king. Those were the big three in Israel. Prophet, priest, and king. Of course, Jesus came and fulfilled all three. But in terms of the history of Israel, he wasn't a person of notoriety as to his position. Let's call him a common man. An ordinary person. Not of any of those three statuses. But now let me contradict myself. He actually was a person of notoriety. Not as prophet, priest, and king, but as to the position called cupbearer to the king. What we know of a cupbearer to the king is that routinely, at least to begin with, the role seemed to be exclusive related to being a butler to the king in such a way that you actually ate the king's food before he entered it into his mouth and drank the king's wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Quite a job, high-risk job, you might say. But over time, the cupbearer to the king became known as something else, not just that particular functional approach, but it became known as an insider a person who advised the king, a person who was closest to the king. As a matter of fact, a person who it is said had more influence on the king than the king's own family did. 
Some people in history have described the cupbearer as actually like the chief of staff for the king. So now we have an individual who doesn't qualify as prophet, priest, and king in the nation of Israel, but in a secular position qualifies as a person of notoriety. What this man Nehemiah knew was only about Jerusalem. He was actually born as a Jew in captivity. He'd never been back himself until this point. But on one trip, where people were sent back to investigate how things were going along, and by the way, Ezra had already been there trying to reconstruct the temple. When being sent back, he got a report from them. He said, it's a mess. The report said, the walls are broken down. The city gates are burned. The place is in disarray and people are discouraged. It's a bad time. And Nehemiah says to himself, we got to rebuild. We have to do something. So the question becomes, for us, at least today, how did Nehemiah and how do the people approach their mission? It was pretty singular. Rebuild the walls. How did they do it? First, they did it by recognizing their need. In other words, they faced boldly the situation. They they said things really are dire. It really is a mess. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. It's a disaster. They, in recognizing their need, were also overwhelmed in that recognition concerning the need. It was bigger than them. It looked at some times undoable. How could it ever be restored? It was a need that kept Nehemiah awake at night. He said, night and day it was on my mind. I couldn't stop thinking about it. He was overwhelmed by the need. You know, by the way, Nehemiah had a really good job. Nehemiah could have stayed in relative luxury. He could have said, God appointed me to this position, and I'm just going to stay right here because I'm satisfied with the position, and I'm making a lot of money. I'm well cared for. But he decided against that option. I don't want to rush out ahead of my headlights and suggest something I don't think is appropriate for everybody. I don't want you guys to run out and drop your job and go off and do something different. It's not always appropriate. But on occasion, God calls, and he calls us to do something that leaves everything behind. The history of the Christian church is filled with these kind of stories. As a matter of fact, the history of the contemporary church is filled with these kind of stories. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, we had a pastor, his name was Curtis Whitaker, who was here with members of his congregation. And he told the story about how God had called him. We as a missions committee have committed to helping them in the project. And what is the project? Well, first, what was the position? Curtis had graduated from IU School of Business over here before it was called Kelly School. 
He got a really good job with Arthur Anderson in the city of Chicago. He was making lots of money living in a luxurious downtown apartment. And as he said, I was living the dream. One of the things I had, among others, was season tickets to the Chicago Bulls. That was a big deal in the 90s. But he heard the call of God. And God said to Curtis, leave it all behind. I want you to walk away from all of it And I want you to go back to Gary, Indiana. People don't go back to Gary. They leave Gary forever. But the call was overwhelming. He gave up his job. He went back to Gary, Indiana to rebuild a community that he grew up in. It's, a, it's an incredible Nehemiah kind of story. And at the beginning of this narrative, it's clear that he recognized the need. Even though the need was overwhelming. The second thing that Nehemiah and the people did, not only did they recognize the need, they declared their dependence. They said, God, you're the Lord of heaven. And this job is way bigger than us. As a matter of fact, God, we can't do it. We've got to be utterly dependent on you because you're the Lord of heaven and nothing is too big for you. His attitude in spite of his position was an attitude of humility and a recognition of his need to be dependent on God. And how does that play out in the story? At the very end of the verses that we just read, he said, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I was so overwhelmed by the need, I had to declare my utter dependence upon God. The third thing Nehemiah did and the people is they acknowledge their sins. I'm going to go beyond the first four verses that were read this morning to explicate some other themes. And in verses 6b, the last half of 6, we hear the people and Nehemiah acknowledging their sins. I'll begin at the the front of verse 6. Let your ear be attentive to... Be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, that this is pretty all-encompassing, all of us and me have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and the laws that you gave your servant, Moses. God, we blew it. See, the whole history of Israel is a covenant nation where God said, follow me. 
and I'm going to be your special God. And I will bless you in this land that I've given you. But if you don't follow me and you turn away from you, all kinds of calamity is going to come. And this is the calamity that came. Nehemiah recognizes it. And he confesses their sins and his own. By the way, sometimes we think of sins as just kind of breaking a rule, right? We, we think of it as objective disobedience or, or wickedness, and it is. But you see, in a covenant relationship, which is the relationship God had with Israel, there is another awful sin. You know what it is? It's this. just walking away. It's saying, God, appreciate the blessings, but I got it. God, you're good, but I think I can do it on my own. God, I really appreciate your salvation, but I signed the contract. God, I'm thankful for the community of faith, but I don't really need them anymore. So I'm just walking away. That too is a breaking of the covenant. And Nehemiah seems to be highlighting that. So he recognizes the need, which is huge. He declares his dependence on God. He acknowledges the sin. And then... A wonderful turn. He remembers their redemption. Instead of wallowing in sin, which is really easy to do when we take sin seriously. Instead of being always introspective and woe is me. He turns from that. And this is almost scary. He turns from that. And he says to God, God... You remember. Remember what? Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. God, we send. We deserve the exile. But God, you promised. Don't forget your promise, God. I have to figure, and I don't know, that when Nehemiah prayed this way, he started to kind of quiver. His knees got kind of weak. When he said to God, hey, God, you promised. If, if he didn't feel that way, he should have. Because he's talking to the Lord of heaven. But he boldly approached God. And he said, God, you promised. Restore us. Restore us by your grace. 
The fourth thing is characteristic of their approach. Recognize their need, declared their dependence, acknowledged their sin, remembered their redemption, and they waited, particularly Nehemiah, he waited patiently for an opportunity. That's interesting. It appears that Nehemiah may have waited some four months before he approached the king about this. Four months. Fasting, prayer, silence for four months. He was probably in the presence of the king every day. Not probably, he was. That was his job. How often over the four months must he have wanted to say, King, I got something to ask you. But he didn't. All this time he waited for the opportunity. I want to suggest that he was waiting for the opportunity that God prompted him to step into. I want to suggest he wasn't calculating like some salesperson to catch the pitch at just the right time. He was praying, he was fasting, he was listening to God, and he was waiting until prompted by the Spirit to speak. That, that really is the opposite of impetuousness, isn't it? Trusting God's timing. I frequently want to run out ahead of my headlights and God's plan. But he waited and he trusted God's timing. So what happens uh, when we approach problems this way, as Nehemiah did? I, I, I want to suggest three things. When we approach problems this way, it teaches us patience. There, there's a passage, Romans 12, 12. You can look it up for yourself, and it's talking about a variety of things, mostly perseverance. And then one translation that I like the best, not the NIV, says persevere in prayer. The NIV says be faithful in prayer. I guess the same thing. In other words, prayer is perseverance. Prayer is discipleship. Prayer is waiting. Prayer is acting, asking. Prayer is passive. It's a, it's a position of relative powerlessness to pray like this. And this patience that comes from perseverance is important. It also teaches us patience because God doesn't always answer the way we want him to. We persevere in prayer we just don't get the answer. Not because we didn't persevere, but because God's not going to give us what we ask for. The classic example of this is when Paul prays to God and begs him to take away a thorn in the flesh. Love to know what that thorn was. Don't know. You can speculate all day. You'll never know what it is. It was a thorn in the flesh. Drove him crazy. He basically said, God, I can't keep this up. You've called me in a ministry and this is driving me crazy. And God said, in effect, Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. I've given you this thorn because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. 
with this thorn. Your ministry is what it couldn't be otherwise. Your sanctification is right in the middle of all this, Paul. No, I won't take away the thorn. Who likes that answer? But it does teach us patience if we trust God. Second thing this approach does is it humbles us because we have to acknowledge our need. We have to acknowledge that we're helpless without God. We have to admit that we're in desperate need of rescue. I, I mean, there may be people in this world, I know there are people in this world who understand this intuitively. And they don't mind asking for help or saying I need rescue. But I'm not one of them. Okay? So this goes right to the heart for me. I don't want to be rescued. I want to do it. I don't want to be pathetic. I want to be strong. But this approach tells me, Bob, you need rescue. And it humbles me. An old author named Cyril Barber. I mean, even his name's old, right? Um, anybody here named Cyril? I didn't think so. Um, Cyril Barber, he wrote this. Now, you could quibble with any quote, okay? So stop the quibbling for a minute. Just listen to it. He said, the self-sufficient do not pray. They merely talk to themselves. The self-satisfied do not pray. They have no knowledge of their need. The self-righteous cannot pray. They have no basis on which to approach God. Boy, that gets to the point, doesn't it? In order to pray like this, you have to be humble. It teaches you humility. The final thing I think that this approach does is it aligns us with the purposes of God rather than the other way around. Aligning God to our purposes, which is also a default of many people, including mine. This kind of approach aligns us with the purposes of God. So as I, I look out at you this morning and imagine those of you who are online, I can imagine some of you are facing some serious personal challenges. Whether family challenges, spouse, children, work challenges seem overwhelming. A boss that appears to be Satan. <laughs> Finances. just seems like you'll never be okay. You're always behind friendships. It just falling apart. 
You didn't see it coming. Don't even know what you did. But you're deeply wounded and desperate. Challenges to your mental health that seem to come out of nowhere. Or at a corporate level, challenges to the church. If you don't know it, these last two and a half years have been devastating to churches all over the world, particularly those in the United States. It's created a divided house. It's created people who give up and walk out and say they don't need it anymore. It's created all kinds of things. And we need to rebuild our community of faith. We, we need to focus on rebuilding the walls to use the story of Nehemiah. So how do we do that as a body of Christ and as individuals within that body of Christ? Well, I think we should recognize our need. Face it boldly. Don't pretend. I think we need to declare our dependence upon God, complete, utter dependence upon God. I think we need to acknowledge our sins, which are many. And I think we need to align our purposes to God's purposes. So instead of my typical closing prayer, I want you to join me in a prayer that you know very well. And see if you don't hear hints of these themes in the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.